0: Learning the truth about who God is from Thomas Aquinas kind of helped me to learn to live and act and teach in a way that was, I don't know, sound and happy and wholesome. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show. Presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné. And today, uh, we're joined by a guest host, uh, Dr. Roger Nutt, who's actually going to be interviewing me about a special celebration of uh, one of our books. Thanks for having me. Uh,
1: These are big shoes to fill, Michael. I don't think (laughs) I'm going to claim the mantle of guest host, but I do want to thank you for uh, accepting my... uh, Proposal to have an episode dedicated to one of your works, a book that you co authored with Matthew Levering called Knowing the Love of Christ, an introduction to the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. The reason why I wanted to discuss this book with you is many of your listeners may not realize it, but 2022 is the 20th anniversary of the publication of Knowing the Love of Christ. I read the book in 2002 when it came out. I thought it was a significant accomplishment then. It has remained in print, which is no small accomplishment for uh, a book on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it's even been translated at least into French uh, that I uh, that I know of. And so I wanted to spend some time celebrating the 20th anniversary of knowing the love of Christ and maybe talking with you a little bit about the... Uh, the broader movement that I think the book symbolizes and participates in, and some of the great insights about Thomas's theology in the book. So, first, congratulations uh, not only on authoring the book with our dear friend uh, Matthew Levering, uh, but uh, congratulations on a, a great twenty-year run with a book that I think still has
0: momentum. Well, thank you very much, Roger. It's a, uh, it's really a joy and just a. An Um, it was funny when you mentioned that, I totally forgotten that it was the 20th year. I actually went back and I looked, um, at the publication information and sure enough, it was January 1st, 2002. And it really, it's, it's fascinating to think about, right. Two decades later in 2022 and and how much has changed. Um, and yet of course, right. This basic, I don't know the, the basic need to somehow find, uh, intelligibility and meaning, in the thought of Aquinas, uh, really remains kind of one of my great passions,
1: right? So let me ask you two, um, interrelated questions to start off with, and, um, you can go in, in whatever direction you want to go in. There are a lot of introductions to Aquinas. So one question could be why even 20 years Mm -hmm. ago, there were dozens of books about Aquinas. Um, why, Uh, write a book introducing people to Aquinas. And then more particularly, though, this is a—the subtitle is very telling—an introduction to the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. So why write an introductory book on Aquinas, and then why focus on the theology of Aquinas?
0: Well, the—knowing the love of Christ, uh, the title uh, that Matthew and I chose for the book is from Ephesians 3.19— Uh, And it's in that section where he says that you may come to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Uh, And and in there is, I think, the short kind of defense of theology. That we do ultimately what's most important, Christ's love of us and our love of Christ. And yet we can't love what we don't know. And so we need to know the truth about who Jesus Christ is and who God is and what is his plan for us in order to love ourselves and love our neighbor and love God properly. Uh, As I think C.S. Lewis uh, said eloquently one time, right, if we don't have good ideas in our head about God, we will have bad ideas in our head about God. And bad ideas about God will ultimately harm us and harm others. Right, because we will not be able to love ourselves or our neighbor or God properly. Uh, so that, I think, is that first sense is that theology matters. Right. It's worth trying to know the truth about God, even though, as Paul says in Ephesians, right, we know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So we understand that, obviously, you know, we'll never fully understand God, but I can still have better, truer understandings of who God is, Or worse ones. And then I think when we look at who St. Thomas Aquinas is and how he became the common doctor of the church, which is really the shared doctor, the teacher of the whole church, right? The angelic doctor, because he saw things so clearly um, and has been taken up by the church as kind of a sure and steady model. Uh, John Paul II in Fetus at Ratio, right, said that he, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, right, is a model for how to do theology. So if we want to understand the truth about God, then going back to Aquinas' work is so important. And I think it's something that really every generation has to do anew, right? Mm -hmm. The, you know, I don't know, you know, wisdom doesn't exist in books, right? Wisdom exists in people writing books and reading books. So therefore, um, we have to continue to do that. And I think that was one of the things that Matthew Levering and I wanted to do was, how could we as students of theology, students, and it's not just as though we like the Aquinas because I don't you know we, we like the Aquinas because Aquinas saved our lives. I mean, I don't know how put it. like we wanted, you know, both of us were converts or reverts back to the faith. Um, understanding the truth about who Jesus Christ is and who God was um, gave us direction. And then discovering that there was a way of thinking about God that honored him. And uh, was truthful, right? And had a metaphysical depth, and honoring Jesus Christ in a way that showed the radical goodness and newness of his right love and sacrifice for us. Um, Right? These these are not just kind of playthings. I guess this is not just kind of an intellectual curiosity. This was really saying learning the truth about who God is from Thomas Aquinas. Kind of helped me to learn to live and act and teach in a way that was I don't know uh, sound and happy and wholesome and right. So you know, it's like that's it helped me. I I can I can function better in the world because Thomas is one of my teachers. So it would have been absurd for me not to try to share that with students. And then all of a sudden to realize that what happened to us individually is actually what the church has been saying for the last, you know, 600 years right. um, is that same thing is that we can find truth and meaning in our lives. When we try to think more clearly with, as a, you know, a lot of the old books used to say, right. With the mind of St. Thomas. Right. Well, I'm glad that
1: you and Matthew uh, worked so hard to share those lessons with us through this book. And I know that, uh, your readers and uh, innumerable students here at Ave
0: Maria have benefited uh, as well. Yeah. Let me just, by the way, I also want to answer your other question. So you meant, we did talk about the introduction of the theology of Thomas Aquinas. So I would say in the 80s and 90s, uh, in, in that period of um, – you know, kind of after the council, but really just after the chaos of the sixties and seventies. Were you um, born then, by the uh, way? In the eighties <laughs> and nineties? Well, yeah, yeah. So uh, okay. you know, back in the seventies. Wanted to. I uh, uh, wanted
1: wanted your uh, your uh, audience to uh,
0: to know that. So. That's right. That's right. Yes, and uh, so but when we came back to study theology uh, in in the early nineties, there was a group of kind of philosophers who I think loved Thomas, knew Thomas, and taught Thomas. You know, maybe Ralph McInerney is one of them, and and others. Um, and they really defended the philosophy of Thomas and were very faithful to Thomas and faithful to the church. Um, but among theologians, there was a tendency for those who dissented from church teaching uh, who would emphasize Aquinas's embrace of reason as kind of a means for separating reason from Christ, reason from revelation. So they would use... Uh, they would kind of present Thomas as a rationalist whose sphere of autonomous reason, uh, kind of borrowing a line from Kant and and other kind of intermediary influences like Karl Rahner and others. So they would use Aquinas to say, well, because we're Catholic, we're gonna follow Aquinas. And Aquinas says we can use reason alone to figure out the moral life and to figure out God. All right? And and that convinced us as well, just not very uh, saving, right? I mean, right. If, if I'm stuck using my own reason, then uh, and using other people's reason, you know, then right, we're not saved. We're we're still stuck in the world of uh, we've been shut off from revelation. So, what we wanted to do is emphasize that uh, that Aquinas has this beautiful theology uh, that is really rich. He says a lot about Jesus Christ. He says a lot about the sacraments. So, we structured the eight chapters of the book. Around the whole Summa Theologiae, and uh, there were which, which has kind of four or three main parts, or sometimes divided up into four parts, but really goes from the beginning of God, who is God, the Triune God, to, through creation, through the virtues, through human happiness, uh, but then also into Jesus Christ uh, and his sacraments, right, and heaven. So. Aquinas is much more Christological, much more biblical, and I would say truly philosophical than this caricature of him as the kind of rationalist right. uh, that was common in some ways.
1: Right. That's beautiful. I um, want to come back in a minute to the order and structure of the book, but I wanted to ask you at least one more preliminary question a bit of a retrospective question Uh, this book was first published in 2002 which was right at the beginning of a number of collaborative works that you and matthew levering did Mm -hmm. to uh, support the renewal of catholic theology it's actually the first of three books i think that you guys have co-authored the second was holy land holy people which is a fantastic introduction to sacred scripture and then the wisdom of the word more Recently, um, I heard Father Romanus Cesario 10, maybe even 15 years ago say that he thought that the initiatives that you guys uh, had spearheaded uh, changed the landscape of Catholic theology in America. And he was speaking specifically of the co-founding with Matthew of the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal. Uh, which you and I get to continue mm-hmm. to work on yes. uh, the uh, founding right around that time of the English edition of the journal Nova Vetera, And then down here at Ave Maria university, the Patrick F Taylor graduate programs in theology, in particular, the doctoral program. Uh, and so I'm wondering in the hindsight of 20 years, were you conscious then of trying to start uh, a broader movement or uh, a community um, of scholars, or was the book then uh, just uh, you know an attempt to get something out that
0: was near and dear to your heart? Well, one thing I would say is that you know there was nothing in a way that was kind of innovative about our approach or our work. We were really trying to recover what we felt was the or really what we judged, was the proper reception of Aquinas. And there were people, uh, Servais Pincares, uh, the Dominican, uh, Romano Cesario, as you mentioned, another Dominican, uh, Charles Jornet, um, some people associated with the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. And I would also say John Paul II's own work, which was richly Thomistic, richly Christological, right? He began the Veritatis Splendor in 19. 19- 93 on moral theology um, with the story of uh, the rich young man's encounter with Jesus Christ, right? What good must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this kind of biblical, Christological renewal of Thomism that would also at the same time be deeply metaphysical and rooted in the truth. Uh, So I think that was something that we saw was a, a living tradition that we wanted to connect to. So when uh you know so that that I think was really kind of a powerful theme. Uh, and no, I think you know, when you do something, you just do something. there's you know, and I think the any things, like any fruits that have happened, I think are totally beyond any agency that we had. Um, yeah, I think we wrote a book, uh, and thankfully, uh, we've been able, you know, it's been assigned in some classes, and that's great, and we're very grateful for it and we were able to do something like start the Aquinas Center and start conferences. In 2001, we had our first conference on reading John, reading the Gospel of John with Saint Thomas Aquinas, and again trying to recover that right Aquinas's day job, right as the you know master of sacred page was to comment on Scripture.
1: Right,
0: um, but in some ways, again, that had been somewhat forgotten. So, partly, I think you know we were kind of a conduit of um, revivifying and renewing. Uh, theology of by trying to recover and retrieve uh, so much of the beauty of the faith uh, and, and being able to start certain initiatives. It is wonderful today to be able to look around in 2022 and see so many more initiatives or institutes uh, for Thomistic renewal and for, I think it's just kind of, you know, like we face so many problems today in modernity. We face kind of this uh, overwhelming kind of, I don't know, a, a, like this heavy weight of empiricism. Everything is just scientific and technological. Or, on the other hand, almost kind of a Gnostic humanism, which is what must we do to somehow liberate humanity from society? Uh, and, and, and when we go back to Aquinas, we see a kind of a richer order. Right. Uh, and, and I think trying to help people do that, help people recover that richer order where there's an order of reasoning that goes up to God, uh, I think has really borne fruit and I think uh, it's wonderful that today there's so many more places that teach or and so many more students uh, amf- interested in Aquinas' biblical commentaries, interested in Thomas's Christology, his Trinitarian theology right alongside of his philosophy of God, and all of these different elements right
1: and I, I think it certainly has borne
0: fruit and one of the
1: things that I would say, when I first saw the book, I uh, was working on my own dissertation, and I think I'm speaking for many others. It gave me confidence mm-hmm. in the fruitfulness of this theological um, re-engagement with Aquinas. So I know I speak on behalf of many others that we have a deep sense of gratitude to you and Matthew for uh, giving us a nudge and showing us, uh, you know, reading John with St. Thomas was a a book that you were able to publish out of that first conference Mm -hmm. that uh, showed uh, Thomas's deep reading uh, of of the gospel of John. And I think you've helped now a whole generation of scholars and students of Aquinas approach this with more confidence than um, um, we otherwise would have been able to. So thank you for that. Well, and you're welcome. Yeah. So uh, I want to, turn to uh, a page in the introduction and go back to kind of the general description uh, that you were given, giving of the movement of the work because I think this is a really insightful uh, passage. You're talking about the role of wisdom mm-hmm. in the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas and in particular the wisdom uh, of divine revelation, of the knowledge that God has about himself that he shares with us. And then you write, theology, therefore, is about God and all things in relation to God as their beginning and end. It's a partial quote from the first question of the Summa. This insight shapes the structure of the Summa Theologiae, which begins with the Trinity and ends with eternal life in the Trinity, mm. so that's a very profound and sweeping statement. Mm-hmm. That theology, from beginning to end, is about God, and to the degree that it reveals anything about us, it's about our journey to God. So, can you talk a little bit more about what you learned from St. Thomas on that uh, point? That there's not, to, to put it in in modern terms. What we find in St. Thomas's theology in your introduction is not a theology of this or that, but literally a theology of everything.
0: Well, that's, I think, definitely partly uh, why I fell in love with Aquinas. Um, It's it's interesting, just anecdotally, I was an engineering undergraduate major, and so I always wanted to see everything in the whole, right, and to try to understand how all the parts are connected. And uh, so I love kind of seeing Aquinas where he recognizes we have to make sense of the whole, uh, that that the whole is good. Uh, and the sense of wisdom, instead of looking at modernity where we see all we see are parts and the parts are broken and how do we get them back together? But the problem is we can never get them back together if we're all only dealing with parts. So that sense of wisdom as a view of the whole. There is a whole universe. There is a whole creator. There is a whole plan. Uh, I think, I mean, you know, that I think in some ways, everybody I think has this existential question. Right. Uh, and Aquinas will even say one time when, um, you know, when, when we, uh, he's, a, you know, when the young person uh, achieves the age of reason, they either have to make a decision about what's the last end. Is it God or kind of is it themselves? And I think sometimes we can think about that in a willful way. But ultimately the question is, what's the ultimate meaning? is the ultimate meaning of the universe somehow god and everything coming from god and somehow going back to god in a way that i cannot understand in this life fully um, or is it just you know the world as i encounter it and so ultimately i'm going to say that the world is you know meaningless and, and so i think that that sense of just that recovery that there is a whole there is a truth i may never understand all of it but i know it all orders together. And I think that's really the gift of the Summa. The gift of the Summa is Aquinas structures it around the order of reality. And then just real quickly, I want to kind of say, like, you can highlight three different ways that he could have set this up, right? One, you might write a theology, an introduction to theology around the history of theology, right? How has the theology um, kind of been received in each age and changed over time and maybe stayed the same over time? Or you could set it up like a, I don't know, like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. You have a topic on grace, you have a topic on Christ, a topic on um, you know, the Bible, and you set them up in alph- you just set them up in alphabetical order because they don't have any intrinsic connection. But what Aquinas does is he says, all the world is God is the creator, Trinitarian, communicating himself to creatures, communicating to those creatures in grace having those creatures receive his grace through the operation of natural and supernatural virtues, Mm -hmm. uh, then going through the mediation of Jesus Christ back to God. And so I think the beautiful thing about Aquinas is just when you've, when you look at the order that he presents, you already get in a way the best of his teaching, which is that there's a fundamental order. Right. And I don't need to know everything, but I know somehow, and I think you'll get this idea that I think if you study Aquinas you may not know everything by any means, obviously you don't know, of course not, but but you can know a little bit about everything. So you have some sense, if there's a moral issue, you have some sense, well, okay, these are certain basic principles of the body-soul unity, these are certain basic principles of the virtues, there are certain laws, there are certain things that ought never be done. Um, you get these kind of understandings. If you have a Christological question, well, Achilles, you know, okay, well, Aquinas teaches this about... That you know, the two natures of Christ, that Jesus is um, the eternal divine Son, and also um, right, has assumed to himself a human nature. Uh, right. So this idea in a way that Thomas kind of, I think gives this, we not only affirm that there is an order of the whole, but then we know kind of that Aquinas begins to kind of set it up. And so that's what we did with our book, is just we just imitated the same order of we imitated the order that Aquinas put forward, which is, the order of reality.
1: Sure. And one more, I don't want to take um, your show uh, too far afield, but when hearing you speak about this, I'm reminded of our friend and mentor, the late father, Matthew Lamb, who used to say that the fundamental difference between modernity, say post Descartes, and the first millennium of the church, uh, certainly through, I think, the life of Thomas and Bonaventure and, and Albert the Great, so through the 13th century, yeah. was that that first movement was a search for wisdom, particularly the unity of all things under the luminosity of God and understanding ourselves. Yeah. And what we get in modernity is power. And so without going too far afield, just mm-hmm. to help your Audience appreciate the importance of, you know, Aquinas's um, commitment to the pursuit of wisdom. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between, say, modernity and power, and what we call the sapiential or wisdom-based approach that we find in Aquinas? Yeah.
0: You're listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show.
1: So, Michael, right before the break, I had asked you, uh, without going too far afield, just to contrast the beautiful wisdom-based approach of St. Thomas with the more power-based approach of Mm -hmm. maternity to help your listeners understand how important this part of St. Thomas's approach to theology is for us today.
0: Yeah, so I think what happens in some ways with somebody like Descartes, as you mentioned, um, you know, Descartes says that If we can set aside the traditional way of thinking about thinking, right? The traditional way of thinking about science or medicine, he believes that we could become masters and possessors of nature, right? And end up with an infinity of inventions. This is what he describes. So for him, knowledge and reason is about having power over nature. Whereas for Aquinas, uh, reason is about. Learning to come to see the whole of nature, and so, and I think you can kind of see that with some of the excesses of the modern world. We are very good at having power over things. So, if I have a broken arm, we're very good at setting it. We can even put titanium rods in it. We can do all these different things, you know. So that's very good. Um, but what about the human person? The human person becomes another thing that we try to over which we exercise power. Right. right. How do I how exercise power over my own life? When to die? That should be my choice according to this modern notion of power over nature. And I think even God and the universe, it's just like everything is set against me in a relationship of power. And so uh, I think that really limits us. And what Descartes did in part was to get rid of a sense of the whole. So all you have are parts. Uh, And again, as I mentioned that before, so you have power over parts, and I try to know more and more about less and less so that I can unlock the power of nature. Uh, And, you know, I think uh, Pope Benedict describes this in his encyclical on hope uh, when he says, um, somewhat provocatively quoting Adorno, right, that progress, right, is the movement from the slingshot to the atom bomb. Hmm. So we now have power over nature, but that really gives us the power to unlock powers within nature to destroy ourselves. So power is, is understandable in a world where we are beset by dangers and illnesses and threats. It's understandable to want to have power. But we can never live by power alone. Right. We cannot live by power alone. We need to have a certain sense of why are we here? Where are we going? What are the proper means by which we can exercise power? Right. Right. What's the meaning of life? And in some ways the modern world it can't answer that question. And so what Aquinas does is situate a larger notion of reason where reason is first open to the whole of all reality, God and everything coming from God. Second, all of the natural world which includes the human person so, yes, we need to understand what's, what are the natures of things? What's the nature of the human person? Is the person body and soul? Is the person more than matter? Does right. the matter of the person matter? Right? These are real questions. And then what's the natural world? That the natural world is ultimately a good thing from God. It's intelligible. So then we can have scientific progress, right? but scientific progress that's understood within a larger whole. And so I think that's really what Aquinas offers, um, uh, which is, um, you know, in, in, in my mind, it's the only thing that's really satisfying. Right. Uh, you know, as I said, I mean, I actually was, I started college as an atheistic engineer and right. The dream of scientific progress uh, was one. I kind of held dear but it's, I said it, it ultimately um, it asks too much. You have to believe in a way uh, too much because if it's all just parts and it's all just power, uh, then how do I explain the human experience of love? Right. I either have to explain it away. So I think what Aquinas does is situate this idea that ultimately, you know what? It's not just the human experience of love, right? It's the divine experience of love. Right. The most fundamental thing, the most fundamental truth about our universe, right? Uh, in some ways is, right, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that all who should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, Right. God so loves the world. Ultimately, the world is not merely an arena of power and violence, but an arena of love. Brilliant. God loves us. We have the power to love one another, to love ourselves and to love God.
1: That's beautiful. So I want to ask a bit of a, um, I want to be a bit of a contrarian. You mentioned. Um, yeah the please impact that Aquinas had his wisdom had on your own reversion to the faith. And yeah. you've now explained very beautifully the importance of his wisdom based approach to theology. But I think a lot of people in the Catholic church today, and, and perhaps even some Protestants, when they hear the name Aquinas, they think more rational mm-hmm. and less spiritual or they think that um, you know, there's something um, kind of def- deflating about what they find in St. Thomas that's different than the experience that you have described. So um, how would you present this to people, not as a Catholic form of rationalism, but um, the inspiring and, and, and animating force that you've described that it's had in your own life? So
0: some people have compared Aquinas' Summa, uh, and the Summa, by the way, it was his large book. It was kind of a summary of theology or the height of theology that he wrote, um, mainly for the training of Dominicans who would go out and preach in the 13th century. Uh, it did eventually become taught in the universities and in uh, seminaries. Uh, famously was put uh, next to the Bible in the Council of Trent. Uh, So the way you can think about the Aquinas Summa is it's like a medieval cathedral. It's kind of huge and cavernous, and there's all sorts of nooks and crannies, and there are little side altars, and there's stained glass, and there's uh, statues, and there's the Eucharistic altar. Uh, And it's all a whole, but the parts are all splendid. And you only kind of recognize how all the parts of the cathedral fit when you look at the whole cathedral. And they're always designed usually along a huge cross. Everything is somehow both true in its own part, but also ordered to the whole. And so I think what happens for a lot of people when they read Aquinas, they just read a part and they get stuck in a basic side altar. Right. And what he says about the nature of God or the nature of existence uh, or, right, the idea that good and the good and the true and being are all interchangeable, right, that they're all, you can't be good without being true and you can't be true without being and all these different dimensions. And people can get lost in these kind of side parts. They're absolutely necessary to the cathedral, but they're not the cathedral. you got to remember, what's the fundamental cathedral for? Well, the th- cathedral's for when the high mass is celebrated on the main altar. Right. So I would say the same thing for reading Aquinas. We've got to remember, what's the overall architecture of the work? And I think what happened, and there was even a tendency to have Aquinas' Summa separated into little treatises, so you would just read the Treatise on Grace. Okay. So if you read the Treatise on Grace, for example, right at the end of the um, Prima Secundae, uh, you have a section, really just questions 9 through 114, right? So, uh, what, six questions on grace. Well, if you just read that, you're going to miss some really key things. Most obviously, questions the three questions right before are about the new law of grace that Christ initiated, which fulfilled the old law of grace from the Old Testament. So the treatment of grace is primarily then biblical, and Christological. And Aquinas will say that the new law is the gift itself of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So if you just read the six questions on grace, you kind of get maybe an abstract consideration of grace, but you're skipping the fact that he just went through um, a very detailed account of biblical theology dealing with the Old Testament, God's gift to Israel of the law, and then God's gift to the church of the new law in Jesus Christ, so when you begin to see it more in the whole, you see it. You go back to the uh, earlier part of the when he treats the Trinity. He has a question right um, on sanctifying grace, where he connects sanctifying grace to the missions of the Son and the Spirit. Right. So all of the grace that we have is not merely just our nature is elevated to participate in the divine nature. At the same time, it's actually the mission of the Son to become incarnate for my salvation and the mission of the Spirit to be sent for my salvation and sanctification. So just that's a little example, but you could take a question then of grace where you put it in the whole context. You begin to see, wow, this is a deeply Trinitarian, biblical, Christological context, but that's necessary when you step back and you learn the whole And I think we live in an age where, you know, people, uh, and and not just in our age, but just say over the last 50 years where there was um, a lot of the wisdom of Aquinas, this sense of the whole of his own teaching had been lost. And so people began to just study parts. Right. And I think that really did a disservice. So that's partly, again, what our work was doing. And I think there's some other great works. Um, I think Chesterton's book kind of does it in his own way where he talks about Aquinas, the doctor of creation. Uh, Joseph Pieper has a beautiful book. On, uh, on Aquinas, and, and, and there are many other wonderful books, but I think that's certainly what our book was trying to do was to connect all those dots so you never forget that this side altar is in the middle of the cathedral. You never forget that this little discussion here about law um, and natural law, which might seem uh, overly rationalistic, is in the service of a greater understanding of who are we as beings that ultimately can come to know and love God. Sure. So because of the
1: expanse of the Summa, like you said, the medieval cathedral, um, you've explained beautifully how God, the incarnation, grace, the life of the church are all connected by St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, But you also know that I think in part because for a long time um, his philosopher uh, students were his greatest expositors, and so they talked about things like the five ways and uh, a robust doctrine of natural law, which are uh, important parts of his thought on the one hand, Uh, and then also because of the complexity of the structure of the Summa where it starts with God and then you have the moral life and then he introduces Christ in the third part, there was a criticism of Aquinas vis-a-vis that structure that Christ, in fact, wasn't very important for his theology. And mm-hmm. you've written a lot about this. Uh, people may not know that your dissertation was titled Christ the Teacher, uh, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, yes. So I'm wondering, you've already, you, you've already hinted at it, but when people look at that tripartite structure of the Summa and they see God, morality, and then Christ and the sacraments in the third part and think like, well... Christ seems to come up as a footnote at the end. Um, how in, in, in the book and in your own wrestling with this question, how can you help us to see the place that Christ has in uh, Thomas's theology?
0: Well, I think one of the things you mentioned at the beginning is the idea that we're considering God as the creator of all things, the redeemer of all things, so everything coming from God in creation, and therefore, what is creation for? Well, it's for the glory of God. And we have beings in the created world who can come to know and love God. And not only can know and love God with their own knowledge and strength, rational creatures, right? And intellectual creatures like angels. But we can actually come to know and love God with God's own knowledge and love, right? As he dwells in us. Right. So if you simply think about anything, I don't know, but you build a car, what's the most exciting thing when the car runs? right? If you build a house, what's the most exciting thing when people live in the house and the house is filled and, you know, you have Thanksgiving dinner, right? Anything you create or build, it's when it's fully actualized is that's when you're pleased and happy. So when Aquinas says that like Christ as man is our way of returning to God, that's the most exciting point. So even though it's, after treating God and all creation and man and his virtues and the law that he was given and the particular virtues and all that different stuff in his ordering to happiness, the, 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 like the climax, the exciting part of the whole story is when God becomes man so that man might become God, right? So that now in Jesus Christ, with the spirit of Christ dwelling in our hearts, having our sins forgiven, receiving God's transformative mercy so that now i can know and love god as the son knows and loves god because right i the son and the spirit dwell in my heart so that even the father dwells in my heart right like that's in a way when creation comes most fully alive right. and so that's the whole point of it right it's like so um, and it's just, you know, it's like not understanding, um, that, you know, I don't know that in a novel, right. It's often the end that's the most important. Right. Um, and I think it's just, you know, I, I, think it's just really a false criticism of Aquinas and one again, that comes from not understanding how he's not dealing with parts. It's just one order of creation. And you could begin with Jesus Christ. You could begin at the end, but, uh, But in this story, you also have to remember, we really have to be careful, a lot of misunderstandings about Jesus Christ happen because we don't really understand the nature of God, right? Right. right? And a lot of misunderstandings happen because we really don't understand the nature of humanity. And so then by the time we get to that part in the story, right, you know, we should almost be kind of jumping up and down. We should be getting out of our seats. We should be really excited and ecstatic. And I mean literally ecstatic. We are coming out of ourselves when we see what happens in Jesus Christ and what He does for us, and communicates to us through faith in the sacraments. Right? We in, in Aquinas, right? We are like you know the image of God is being perfected in us, so that we begin to reflect God, right, with His own knowledge and love.
1: Right. Thank you. Was there anything in composing the book that you learned uh, that really um, surprised or moved you? Uh, and I know it was 20 years yeah, ago, so in yeah. case you're, uh, n- nothing's coming to mind, I can ask a flip side. Is there a particular part of the book that you um, continue to love or maybe in teaching or discussing the book over, over the years that you've really uh, um, loved going back to because it's reminded you of something in Aquinas
0: that is especially dear to you? Well, I think, I think there's a key insight and this kind of gets actually a little bit of what we were just talking about, uh, that is so important, which is that God and the universe are not in competition with one another, right? God and man are not in competition with one another. I learned this, I didn't know it at the time I read the book, but uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said something like, right, if there is God, there is no room for me, right? That we often see God and the world in competition, God and us in competition. And Aquinas, both metaphysically and biblically, reminds us that the creator is never competition with this creature, right? The being I have is the very being that God has given me, which is just a sharing in his own being. Any love I have is love that comes from the creator, right? That he is sharing with me. So my own being, my own truth, my own love are not original with me. But they're my sharing in God's, now, being knowledge and love. So now because of sin, I often, of course, don't really love, and I don't really know the truth, and I don't really, I, I kind of, um, I'm bent over, I'm stooped over by burdens, right? And so it can often feel like I'm, God's and I are not kind of in sync, but that's because I'm stepping out of the goodness of the created order. Mm. And so I think that, fundamental insight. I mean, I think whether or not it's the nature of free will and grace, grace doesn't violate my free will because God as the creator is simply restoring me back to proper relationship with him. The two natures of Jesus Christ, they're not in competition. The divine, it seems like how could God, how could Jesus be both God and man? Well, because one's the creator and one's the creature, there's no competition between them. Uh, even on issues like evolution or scientific work or creation, again, no competition because the order of the create, the, the ordering principles and activities of the created order are dependent upon and participating in the real primary ordering and activity and principles of the creator. What an important lesson, uh, especially uh, for our
1: times um, today. So, I have a, a a concluding remark that I would like to make as the guest host, but you have a tradition of asking your guests uh, three questions <laughs> uh, on 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 the show, and yes. um, yeah. Um, can you remind me what the questions are yeah, so that yeah, I can yeah. I can ask? So the first you. one is
0: what's a book? Uh, what's a book you've been? What's a book I've been reading? Okay, <laughs> Michael, what's a book you've been reading? Um, so you know it's been fun. Uh, anyway, my uh, my son actually had a couple uh, Audible books where he got all of the um, uh, the Hobbit and the three Lord of the Rings from from Tolkien, and so I've been listening to them. And it was funny at first I was driving and I was listening to them at like one and a half speed um and now i've slowed it down to one and it's like i almost want to slow it down to 0.75 because i never want it to end because i love the story uh but two things i will share because i've you know read the story i've read the story to my children i've listened to it for you know many many um many years but it really dawned on me how many times tolkien has the key characters unsure of what to do
1: Hmm.
0: they just don't know what to do next And they have to just do the best they can with the limited resources they have, knowing that they may be making a mistake. And I I feel like for me personally, that has been a real gift to recognize. Yes, we may know certain things are true, but when we're, I mean, it's really hard to live in the world and we know the truth about God and that God will bring good out of what we do. Um, but, But I think we have to give up the illusion that we can always get things like we can solve every puzzle. Right. Uh, and I think there's a kind of humility in that that's really good. And the other thing I uh, really have enjoyed from it is, uh, you know, a couple of those famous quotes from uh, Sam Gamgee, but it's that idea that the characters and their great stories, uh, it's not, it's what, what did they do? They just kept going. Like right. it's, that's what we can do is if we keep going and we refuse to give up, right, that's the joy of our life. Not getting everything right, but never always turning back to God. And the second question? Uh, So what's a a practice, uh, what's a daily practice, um, you know, that I do to find meaning and purpose? And, you know, the one that really comes to mind physically that I feel is, um, you know, I have a spiritual mentor or a saint uh, that's really been influential in my life, San Jose Maria, and he would encourage people to live the heroic minute. Hmm. And the heroic minute means like you, you know, it's a friend of mine used to say, it's either the heroic minute when you get right up out of bed in the morning or the cowardly hour, right? Um, but anyway, so the heroic minute, the idea, but is getting out of bed when you're, you know, when the alarm goes off or when you're ready to get up. But the first thing you do is you get on the, you, you get on the, um, ground, you get on the floor, and um, at that moment you put your knees on the ground and uh, you know, kind of kiss the floor and just say, kind of like, you know, today is totally yours. I got nothing. I can't handle today. I can't handle the world. But God, you can. And I entrust this day to you, Um, no matter what burdens I wake up with in the morning and um, right, you know, whatever, whatever's going on, uh, just that action. It's like one of those things that just kind of plants my whole day, um, you know, and I I put it all in God's hands and and, and I find that very meaningful. Thanks for sharing that. And the third question, Uh, what's what's a falsehood uh, that I believed about God? And, um, and, and what was the truth eventually that I discovered, you know, I think for me, the falsehood I believed about God was a falsehood about Christianity growing up. Somehow I had intuited the idea that Christianity meant that everything was good in the world and everything would go well for you. Uh, so I don't know where I got this. It's not really what Christianity teaches, but it's something like a popular version of Christianity. And so I thought I was very wise at the age of like eight, nine, and 10 for being an atheist because I was aware that the world in my mind sucked. People died. I had a niece who died when I was 10. I had a sister who died when I was 13. Um, And also just, I don't know, when I was like eight or nine or 10, I just looked around the world and it seemed things were dying all over the place. You know, every time we'd watch a National Geographic show, it was like animals were killing one another. And then the worst thing was is human beings would come on the scene and kill more animals. It was just I always was aware of just the the, the burden of, of life and just the difficulties of it. And and so I just thought kind of Christianity must be false because Christianity says everything is good and everything is easy and everything is, you know, I don't know, you everybody gets like, you know, um, I don't know, everybody gets, everybody, if, if you pray, you should get a nice 401K or something. I don't know. I just had this silly idea of Christianity. And so really to be liberated from that idea and to realize that, no, God, didn't it, it's it's actually that insight i had was a very christian idea so much so you know god god in a certain sense hates death and evil so much that he entered into the world to die for my sins and to take that suffering and death right every tear right every drop of blood that has been shed He took on himself. So he entered in. So the beauty is not that, of course, we suffer and die, but that now we don't suffer and die alone. Our suffering and dying is no longer in vain, right? Ultimately, the creator of the universe has entered the creation to bring that suffering and death onto himself, right? To put it on his shoulders, to put it in his sacred heart, right? His sacred heart that was pierced by the lance for us, right? So that the loving, living waters and blood of the sacraments would come forth so that we would always have visible and tangible reminders of God's love for us. So that I still can, I don't know, I can still be aware of all the suffering and dying and hurts of this world, and yet those are now the things that actually draw me closer uh, to the God who is so loving and mysterious, uh, right, that he shows up for us on the cross and in the resurrection, Okay, thank you. I think the people who watch the
1: show are going to love learning learning these things about you and learning a little bit more about you. Let's turn back to the book just to close. Uh, The first book review that I ever published was Of Knowing the Love of Christ. I wrote it in 2002. It came out in 2003. And then I wrote, This book, as the subtitle suggests, truly is an introduction to the theology of Thomas Aquinas. Also, more than just an introduction to the theological thought of St. Thomas, the ample biblical citations and coherent ordering make this work a nice general introduction to the whole discipline of theology. In a work that is both accessible to the beginner and beneficial for those more advanced, Dauphinet and Levering have injected injected English-language Thomism with a refreshing shot in the arm— it's still refreshing oh. and it's still helping uh, many uh, students of theology come to appreciate St. Thomas's uh, thought. I recommend the book, Knowing the Love of Christ, to anyone who watches this show or listens to this show. You will find um, in this book, uh, I think, the best English language introduction to th- Thomas's thought. So, thank you for allowing me to co host and talk about your work. Uh, a little bit and on the 20th anniversary of knowing the love of christ congratulations to you and your co-author matthew levering for a job uh, that was so well done and still bearing fruit today
0: well thank you very much roger and thank you for a lovely show thank you thank you so much for joining us for this podcast if you like this episode please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show and if you want to take the next step please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.